Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Greetings. My name is Dr. Sidney Brayman, and on behalf of Academic CME and support from InsMed, I welcome you to this podcast entitled Diagnostic Strategies and Long-Term Management of Patients with Non-Tuberculous Mycobacterial Lung Disease, also called NTM lung disease. We will be discussing uh, mycobacterial species uh, other than uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis and not mycobacterium leprae, which is a cause of leprosy, but other mycobacterial um, uh, uh, bacteria uh, that have been referred to as the atypical mycobacteria. Uh, the importance of this discussion regarding NTM uh, infections cannot be overestimated. Why? Because these infections are clearly increasing worldwide. This is likely due to many factors, including the increased numbers of immunocompromised patients we have because of the therapies we give, uh, certainly increased diagnostic techniques that we'll hear a little bit more about. Uh, certainly life expectancy is also a factor since most of these infections are caused in elderly individuals, especially women. So NTB is a chronic debilitating pulmonary disease, can be, and hence we have ask a leading, worldwide leading pulmonologist, Dr. Charles Daly, to participate in this discussion today. Discussion will be the evaluation and clinical data on NTM lung disease, both therapeutics and diagnostics. Dr. Charles Daly is a pulmonologist at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. He is chief of the Division of Mycobacterial and Respiratory Infections, as well as professor of medicine at University of Colorado Welcome, Dr. Daly. Welcome, Chuck. Thank you. Thanks, Sydney. Let's talk first about uh, some of the organisms uh, that individuals may not be that familiar with. Uh, what are these NTM organisms uh, uh, in, in, that affect the lungs? Well, first, let's just start with, uh, there are about 200 species of mycobacteria. You named the two most famous, TB and le uh, leprosy. Um, but the rest are NTM. And that list continues to grow. Uh, and is becoming really a challenge for laboratories to be able to tell the clinician exactly which species is growing from the respiratory specimen. But if you look at what's been published uh, throughout most of the world, uh, there are just a few that are the real common causes of pulmonary disease. And so MAC is clearly the most important, Mycobacterium avium complex. There are about 10 species now and several subspecies of MAC. So it, it is important for the lab to be able to help us uh, with which one is infecting our patient. Uh, another very important uh, slow grower is Mycobacterium kansasii. And in some regions, uh, Mycobacterium xenopi. We don't see very much in the U.S., but it's number two to MAC in Canada. Um, and in parts of France, uh, the U.K., uh, it's the most common cause of pulmonary NTM. And then the final are the rapid growers, like Mycobacterium obsessus. And what I just listed are the ones we really focused on when we revised the 2020 guidelines. We couldn't cover 200 species, so we stuck with those. Mm -hmm. Are these organisms easy to culture? I, I hear you see rapid grower. Uh, others obviously must be taking a long time to grow. What could the clinician expect as he sends off a sputum sample? 
Yeah, so traditionally they've been divided by their growth rate. Um, the rapid growers, the most common uh, to cause lung disease is Mycobacterium obsessus and its three subspecies. But the definition of rapid grower is that you see growth on solid media within seven days. If you send a sputum specimen, it could potentially take longer than that if it was a very small number of organisms. Uh, and then in everything else, if it takes longer than that, uh, it's a slow grower. Um, so the, the, that growth rate is, uh, has been traditionally important uh, but now we have such precise speciation, that's actually more important. Mm -hmm. So the clinician would anticipate uh, even as many as several weeks uh, to get a positive culture? Yeah, for the slow growers like Mac, for example, often it's about 21 days uh, when we start to see growth. But if it's a smear positive specimen, it could grow in seven days. So it's partly based on how much is inoculated. But yeah, you have to be patient uh, right now. These are relatively <laughs> slow growers, and uh, it takes usually weeks for us to get answers. When a clinician sends off a specimen, uh, like usual bacteria, the biogenic bacteria, do you ask for uh, sensitivities on these organisms? How does that work? You know, we do recommend uh, drug susceptibility testing to certain drugs, and that varies by the species, uh, if you think it's clinically significant. You know, of those 200 species, most of them don't harm humans and their environmental contaminants. And no, I wouldn't request susceptibility for those. But for the ones that I mentioned, and particularly in the setting of suspicion of NTM, uh, they, there should be susceptibility testing ordered. Mm -hmm. So which of the drugs uh, do you get uh, susceptibility testing on and, and which are the most important to, to, to realize? You know, for MAC, it's pretty clear. It's the macrolides and amikacin. Uh, those are the only two drugs, drug classes for which we have an MIC cut point for resistance that actually correlates with treatment outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, so if your uh, isolate, for example, has an uh, uh, MIC greater than uh, 64 for amikacin, the patient is not going to respond microbiologically. Unfortunately, with the other drugs that we use, like rifampin and thambutol, uh, we don't have such cut points. And so really it's very difficult to interpret those results, either sensitive or resistant. I heard a word uh, as a pulmonologist that was ringing in my ears, azithromycin. My gosh, we use azithromycin <laughs> for many, many conditions, uh, bronchitis and so forth, COPD exacerbations. Uh, since uh, you're concerned about susceptibility uh, testing, uh, and the, the, the drug may be resistant. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the uh, bac mycobacteria may be resistant. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the, what's the advice that you might give uh, to individuals uh, who are contemplating use of uh, azithromycin, particularly uh, we're now using it with uh, COPD, bronchiectasis, long-term, mm -hmm. as many, as much as a year or more. Yes. Yeah, this has always been a, a concern, particularly in the setting of bronchiectasis, because they have such a high incidence of NTM pulmonary disease, highest of any condition. Mm -hmm. um, what we recommend is before you initiate monotherapy, uh, just rule out NTM uh, mm -hmm. by collecting sputum specimens, uh, usually uh, rate, uh, imaging studies to make sure you don't see something suspicious. And then during the course of treatment, we recommend periodically checking a sputum culture for mycobacteria. Mm -hmm. um, you know, fortunately, it's not that common that we see macrolide resistance. Uh, and if you follow that approach, pretty unusual uh, that you will develop macrolide resistance. Mm -hmm. But we've all been in that setting where we started it in someone and boom, here comes that MAC 
positive culture. And when that happens, we recommend stopping the azithromycin and then again, making us an assessment, do you need to treat the mac or not? Uh -huh. Well, we talked about azithromycin, the antibiotic. What about steroids, inhaled steroids especially? Uh, should we be concerned and be more vigilant in individuals, particularly with chronic lung disease who are inhaled corticosteroids? Yeah, that's a good point, Sydney. I think most people don't know this uh, issue uh, very well. And that is there are several studies that have demonstrated that inhaled corticosteroids are associated with an increased risk of pulmonary NTM. And uh, one study was dose-dependent, and it was impressive uh, odds ratio for those on high-dose inhaled steroids for their risk of disease. So I would say that every patient I see who has bronchiectasis in particular, I, I look at why are you on these steroids, you know, and try to find why and try to figure out have they benefited them. And if not, I'm going to try to get them off of them. Um, yeah. It's something we do literally every day in clinic is try to pull steroids off. Now, I'm with you there. Uh, certainly, my interest in COPD uh, and the step-down therapy that we're trying to initiate in many patients uh, relates to that. In, in individuals who are on, uh, for example, uh, even oral corticosteroids chronically or inhaled steroids, is, is there any particular surveillance that you would suggest, maybe radiographically, uh, to follow these patients along, as opposed to those who are not on these agents? Yeah, I, actually, I, I don't think there's much that I do differently uh, with my bronchiectasis patients because I, I'm always looking for NTM or other infections. So for me, I'm doing surveillance cultures in everyone. I would say probably about every six months uh, and imaging uh, anywhere from six months to a year, depending again on what the patients, the severity of their disease, um, how stable they've been. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about treatment now. Uh, first of all, who who are you anticipating treating? I understand that not everybody who gets a positive sputum culture needs to be treated. So and what are the settings where you uh, would see treatment absolutely necessary? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is definitely what separates us from tuberculosis, where a positive culture outside of contamination, we treat. And we treat, you know, with the same regimen. Uh, with NTM, it's more complicated. Um, simply growing uh, a mycobacteria does not mean it's causing harm, particularly some of these more unusual, uh, typically environmental water contaminants. Um, but even in the setting of growing MAC or Kinzassii uh, or Xenopi, uh, the patient may never grow it again. So we want to be able to establish that this is uh, persistently positive, ideally over time. In the guidelines, we said get three sputum specimens over at least a week, but you know, around the table, we're all going, you know, really, we're talking about <laughs> weeks to months. Yeah. Uh, this is, these are slowly progressive things. We have time to make the right decision. So when we're at that visit and we're thinking, initiate treatment or watchful waiting, you know, the thing that kind of pushes us one way or the other, well, one is which species? Is it a pathogenic species? More likely to treat that. Is the patient symptomatic? More likely to treat that. You know, the old joke, if you're not symptomatic, I can make you symptomatic by giving you three antibiotics. So uh, are they symptomatic? And what's the extent of their radiographic disease? If they have cavitary disease, I'm starting therapy. Uh, for non-cavitary disease, asymptomatic, I may follow them. But I think the key here is follow. The message isn't, don't worry, this is nothing. The message should be, you may have an infection that could progress over time. So we're going to follow you with periodic imaging, sputum culture, and clinical assessments. Super. You mentioned a magic word. You said sitting around the table. And I must say at this point, 
uh, how much I appreciate your sitting around the table with many other world experts, giving us phenomenal guidelines. And I think that hopefully people will look after the, those guidelines because they've been extremely helpful and, and comfort me and certainly I think give much better patient outcomes. So I'm sitting in front of a patient and as you described, you know, I'm ready to prescribe three medicines. And the patient looks and said, but this is a, a bacteria. Why do I have to have all three? Uh, what's your uh, advice to not only what we would say to the patient, but also the clinicians? I mean, do we always need three? Yeah, that's an important question and has led to a very large clinical trial that's ongoing in the U.S. now, which is a randomized trial comparing two versus three. And the one we left out was rifampin. So the two drug regimen would be azithromycin and ethambutol, because we don't really know the answer to that question that patients do ask. Uh, but until we get the results of that trial, we're still recommending three drugs. Why? Well, we learned this lesson a long time ago with TB, that if you give monotherapy, uh, resistance develops to that. In the setting of TB, streptomycin, by three months, 70 plus percent of people had resistant isolates. We also know in cohorts of macrolide-resistant cases in the U.S. that one of the strongest predictors is macrolide monotherapy. And right behind it is macrolide with a poor companion drug, like, like a quinolone, even rifampin. So if you're going to give two drugs, it should, the base should be azithromycin and ethambutol. But we still recommend three. But we'll have, a, we'll have a randomized trial in a few years that will, I think, inform the next guidelines. Okay. And as of now, we're stuck with three. three. Patients stuck with three. Yeah. Um, so uh, let me ask this question. Uh, obviously, you, you, we sit with the patient. We say we're going to be starting these three drugs. Um, uh, we may want to touch right now about the, the three-time-a-week regimen versus the daily regimen. And what have the clinical trials shown to date with respect to outcomes? What, what do we say to patients in terms of their, we're going to mm -hmm. give you this medicine? What's going to happen next? Well, one thing we suffer from in this field is a lack of clinical trials. We have a number of retrospective and prospective cohorts, and that's really where most of our uh, treatment success culture conversion data come from. In fact, there was a systematic review that was published that uh, looked at everything to date. Um, almost 2,700 patients were included in that systematic review, and they reported that treatment success was only in the mid-50s, 55 or so percent. If it was treatment with an ATS recommended regimen, it jumped to 61%. And if they took it for at least a year, it was about 66%. So that seems rather poor. But if you look at more recent studies that were actually larger studies, um, one from uh, Samsung Medical Center that I was involved in, one from University of Texas, Tyler, one from Japan, their treatment success was closer to 80%. So I think the more modern studies are showing better outcomes I'm not sure exactly why that is, but you know, each, each study is different population and sometimes different regimens. So I tell patients, we can usually get culture conversion up to about 80% of the time in non-cavitary disease. Mm -hmm. If they have cavitary disease, that drops. In one study, it drops as low as 50% culture conversion. Um, so non-cavitary around 80, cavitary somewhere between 50 and 80% culture conversion. And, and by that, I mean sustained for at least a year. Yeah. So now it's now the time to talk about time. Uh, how long do I have to treat mm -hmm. my patients? And, and what if they're getting better in a year or so? Uh, that's because I, I know you're going to mention that, uh, that time frame. Uh, 
what about longer? Uh, they're not having any toxicity with the drugs. They're tolerating the drugs. Um, what's, what's your advice to patients, well, to physicians who are treating the patients? Yeah, again, we suffer from lack of data here. Um, in 2007, we recommended to treat for 12 months after culture conversion occurs. Um, and we basically adopted the same thing because unfortunately in the 13 years between the two guidelines, there were no data to tell us optimal duration of therapy. Now from systematic reviews, we, we get a hint that we're out probably at around the right time. Um, somewhere around 12 to 15 months looks like it's about the right time. And culture conversion usually occurs within three months. So we think we're close to being optimal with the current regimen that we have. But in terms of grade A evidence, uh, we don't have that. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, are there instances where I'm treating and I get a, uh, a positive culture and then I check again in a few and a positive culture again and a positive culture where you're just not eradicating the organism and what would you do next? Let, let's say that the patient is feeling better. Well, yeah, so that's an important, when we're trying to um, evaluate treatment success, it's not just the culture. The culture is very important because it, it you know, it's, it marks that duration that we're looking for. But it also defines treatment refractory disease for people who have not converted their culture by six months. That's called treatment refractory. And it's time to ask yourself, why are this, why is this person not responding? Um, and for, just as with TB, you know, we go, are they taking their medication on the right doses? Has the isolate acquired resistance? You know, we kind of go through that same process we do with uh, uh, tuberculosis. Uh, but in a patient who's clinically better, what if they're radiographically better, uh, but we can't get rid of the culture? That still is a person we would define as treatment refractory. Mm -hmm. And then it, it is time to think about what are the goals of therapy? Maybe cure is not going to be possible uh, in that patient, and we need to rediscuss what the goals will be. Mm -hmm. Let's say you do eradicate the, the organism. Let's say the patient is feeling better. Radiographic maybe show improvement. Uh, patient's going to look at you and say, could this happen to me again? Is there such a thing as reinfection or, or, or uh, reactivation even? Yeah, so recurrence, unfortunately, is common. So in that 70 to 80% that we feel like we've cured, that culture converted, they've been sustained negative for you know, a year, recurrence rate is still quite high. Uh, in several studies, it was anywhere from 25 to 50%. Mm. And importantly, about half to 75% of those recurrences look like a different strain than what the initial strain was. So we term it reinfection. It's also possible to have mixed infections from the beginning and this is the survivor. But the point is that it looks like reinfection is very common and it's very frustrating for patient and provider to have to start this over again when that happens mm -hmm. and retreat. Yeah. So let me ask you probably the toughest question of all. Uh, you mentioned water supply, you mentioned the environment. Uh, can, any, can you do anything to maybe lower your risk of either reinfection or getting the infection in the first place? Anything that, that we could do in our, in our lifestyle? You know, there are a lot of things that make sense. Uh, not a whole lot of science to support them. For example, uh, increasing your hot water temperature. That's been associated uh, in a single study uh, with lowering the concentration of NTM in the water. Makes sense, uh, something people can do. It's gonna increase their electricity costs, maybe some scalding issues, but it can work. The other is, should you filter the water? 
Well, yeah, you can do that as well, but you need to get the right size filter and then you need to maintain those filters. Once you go down the filter path, you, you got to stick with it. You got to change the filters as recommended by the manufacturer. Uh, some people avoid aerosolized water. They don't shower and they take uh, preferably baths. Uh, it makes sense, but we don't really have any data to support that it decreases the risk. And I could go on with these kind of examples, but at the end of the day, what you'd like to be able to tell the patient, if you do these five things, you will decrease your risk of reinfection by 85%, right? If I told you that, then you would follow those five things. But what if I told you it would decrease your risk 5%? You probably wouldn't. And no scientist can tell you if it's five or 85. So I tell people, balance, find balance, avoid obvious uh, places like indoor hot tubs, you know, but, but go out and live your life. And more importantly, do good airway clearance because you're going to inhale things in your life. Do good airway clearance and let's get that out of there before it gets established. Super, wonderful advice. And with that, let me thank you very much. Uh, this has been wonderful discussion and a lot of great information, information uh, for the clinician. So thank you. Okay, my pleasure.